Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and this show is brought to you by your friends at Generation Joshua. As we travel around the country working with young leaders, we meet all sorts of amazing people who are working to change their corner of the world for the better. If you've ever been to one of our iGovern camps, you've probably heard from some of these people. But we thought that it would be awesome if we could sit down for some in-depth conversations and get their stories on the record so that we could share them with the greater Gen J community. This podcast is the culmination of that process, and we think that you're going to find these conversations encouraging and inspiring. So go ahead, pop in your headphones, connect to your Bluetooth speaker, whatever you got to do, and let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I am here to have a conversation today with Brant Edmonston, and I can't wait to jump in. Uh, to kick off with, though, I want to give you a little bit of backstory on Brant. Uh, he is currently the administrator for HSLDA Action, a political advocacy organization that fights for educational freedom. Brant grew up enjoying the benefits of both private school and homeschool education, giving him personal experience with the benefits of educational freedom. So, Right off the bat, he's a great guy to talk about it. Brant formerly worked for Generation Joshua as the education coordinator, and he still regularly assists in the planning, development, and execution of Gen J's programs. He does a lot of stuff with Gen J all the time. Uh, Brant has spent his entire professional career in grassroots politics, working as a field director for Americans for Prosperity, before moving to HSLDA to work with Generation Joshua. Um, then he later served as the Deputy Director for Federal Relations at HSLDA. And then after that, he jumped on board to help launch HSLDA Action, which is his current title. Um, so Brand's done a lot. Uh, he'll definitely have a lot to share um, when we get into the conversation. Um, when he's not uh, involved in the hurly-burly of politics, as he says, uh, he enjoys life uh, at his historic home in small-town Virginia, along with his wife, Mamie, and their daughter, Liesl. Uh So Brant, it is great to be here with you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump in, and we've got a lot to cover. So I want to I guess first ask you, first question, uh, where did you grow up? Right now we, we talked about you have a historic home in Northern Virginia. Might want to hear a little bit more about that later yeah, if we have time. But back in the day before all of this, where do you come from? Yeah, so um, I, I grew up, uh, my family moved around a bit, um, but most of, my, most of my childhood was in Central Virginia, and um, the longest place I lived was um, uh, about the, the eight years um, of my, like, my, my teenage into adulthood life at um, our house in Appomattox County. My family bought um, some land, a little 10 acre, a little 10 acre, excuse me, parcel of land, mostly wooded, and we built a house and we moved in on my 12th birthday um, to that new house. So I, I was there for about, I don't know, eight years. And then, and then I moved to Northern Virginia to start working. So it's, it was, it was in the country, um, lots of woods. We had a, we had a beautiful little Creek running down the, the bottom of our property, um, lots and lots of space. So it was quite a transition moving up to, to Northern Virginia. Yeah, not quite. Uh, I was going to say when, when you said a little 10 acre parcel, 
I was like, that's that's definitely Southern Virginia talk, not Northern Virginia talk, because yeah, no. <laughs> up in Northern Virginia, <laughs> a, a little 10 acres is, you know, a, a huge, huge piece of land. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it felt little compared to our neighbor's nearly 200 oh my gosh. acre piece of wooded property that wow. was like the other side of the street from us. So yeah, so you I, were you, know, you were felt, the I small felt, parcel on the block. Yeah, we were we were the small pol- <laughs> we were the, we were the small parcel on the block, but yeah, in in Northern Virginia terms, I suppose that's that's amazing. Well, that's still quite a Appomattox, Virginia. That's a historic town, right? It, it is indeed. I I lived about um, about fifteen minutes from the surrender grounds, so the old Appomattox courthouse where uh, Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to. Uh, then General Grant. Wow. Um, yeah, for, for all, not, you know, we'll, this will show our history. Functionally ending, um, functionally ending the South's ability to wage war in a meaningful fashion, but um, obviously the Civil War didn't officially end until a, a few months later. Okay, awesome. So major, major town for, a, it, is it fair to say that's like, what most people think of as the main surrender, the end of the civil war. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. Um, we're going to talk, uh, more, uh, once we continue about history in general and, and how I usually default to you on history questions. So, uh, we'll, we'll get there in a bit. Um, okay. So you you grew up in Appomattox, Virginia, lots of history. Um, you said it was pretty rural, so I'm assuming it wasn't like the thriving political center per se. Definitely not. Okay. Um, quite, quite rural. Quite rural. Okay. So now you're in Northern Virginia working in politics. How did you get started in politics? What, what, what changed? What, what was that journey? Yeah. So, um, honestly, you, you play a pretty integral story in my, in my involvement okay. in politics. All right. Um, well, let's, uh, let's share it with the people. Yeah. So I was, um, I was dual enrolling, um, in, in high school and, and college, obviously. And one summer I, you know, was, was, you know, just family friends with you and, and you were involved in a local race down in central Georgia, That's right. a little south of Atlanta. Um, it was a superior court judge race and you were running the, uh, grassroots, um, side of things, the yeah. grassroots campaigning down there. Good memories. Yeah. And you, uh, you know, reached out to some people on Facebook and asked for, uh, asked for any volunteers. So I, I, Decided, you know, why not? I'll give it a shot. That could be interesting. And so I went down for like three and a half weeks, and we just door to door campaigned in Georgia and lost. But it was a lot of fun, lots of good memories. And you know, aside from me marking that as probably like the significant beginning to our personal friendship, um, it it also happens to be um, the first place that I met um, my current in laws and my my wife. That is true, man. Uh, yeah, we, we, we might have to like dig into that at some point in like, I don't know, some tracing the tracing the many connections and, and such of, of Gen J and beyond. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was, and that was technically not even Gen J that was just in my freelance politics days and you getting your, your feet wet, jumping in there. That, those are really good memories. Um, yeah, we spent like a month down there on that project, like mm-hmm. uh, roughly. It you felt like lo- it felt like longer, honestly, because it was like killer Georgia heat. We were campaigning like 
July, July August. right? Like yeah, July, the, the entirety of July and the first week yeah. of August, you were there. And I was there for like, I was there for, you know, the, the two week, two and a half weeks in July. And then the, the first week yeah. of August, yeah. which was the end of the election cycle. Man. So that was, uh, and that was 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 2012. Okay, so 2012 was a big year for politics. We were on this little race down with a superior court judge where, you know, coming from Virginia, I was kind of learning a lot just, uh, I'd done the campaigning, but like electing judges, that that's the thing they did down there in Georgia. So mm-hmm. that was that was fun and interesting. And uh, I definitely learned a lot there as well. Um, but what happened for you after that? Because you, you're telling me you were, you were in high school, you thought, this sounds fun, I'll do it in July. And... And then what happens? Because that's like a definite end point. That's part of the nature of grassroots politics is like very cyclical and you kind of try to find the next thing, but it's not guaranteed. Yeah. So I guess I guess what I would say is that that got um, that got the taste in my mouth to a certain extent. I I, I definitely credit it as a God thing um, that I went down there to begin with because it was not something that I was overly invested in. Mm-hmm. before going down there but I went down there and it it really perked uh, or you know piqued my interest and and um, so anyway that fall I finished my um, uh, I you know I, I kept going I finished my my school and the next fall so I had a, a school year and the next fall I graduated from from college and, uh, was looking, just looking around, looking for internships. So that would have been spring of, of 2013. And, um, yeah, in this, in the spring of 2013, I graduated from college, did some work, uh, in the summer doing just general odd jobs, some construction stuff with some family friends. And then I went to, um, uh, I went to a birthday party and <laughs> for your sister, Rachel. True. Okay. Uh, yep. And that's where, that's where I met Jeremiah and you'd been working on me for a while, if I'm honest, to try to intern with uh-huh. Jen Jay. Uh-huh. And then I met Jeremiah and I talked to him and he finished selling me on it. Um, and so I, I ended up applying that fall and got accepted, um, to do a, a unpaid internship, fall internship with Jen Jay yep. part time. And so I was I was working as the grassroots coordinator for Americans for Prosperity um, to pay my bills. Okay. And um, that was during the the Virginia gubernatorial elections in yep. 2013. Yep. So we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff um, during that period because that was that was very intense. And that was yeah. the big the big government shutdown, which in Northern Virginia is a huge deal because. Sure you have all the government workers. So it was, it was just a very intense time, very intense election in Virginia. Um, so you basically went from being dual enrolled in high school to being dual enrolled in politics. Yeah, basically. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but basically, yes. You jumped in, you started interning for Gen J. Um, you started working for Americans for Prosperity, another great organization. Um, and... Then, it, it is, was that basically through the 2013 Virginia election cycle, all that? Yeah, that was through the 2013 election cycle where, um, you know, we, we wrapped up and they asked me to stay on, um, but I, I, I decided not to stay on further because I wanted to start um, working at a different place. Okay. <laughs> um, 
nothing to do with uh, nothing to do with Americans for Prosperity, but um, I, I wanted to intern at a uh, uh, a political technology startup called Voter Gravity. Okay. Um, it was it was going to be uh, uh, it was going to make it a lot easier for me to do the internship with Gen J, um, where I wasn't. Uh, the schedules were just going to work out better. Yeah. And so I, I moved over there and I started working for Voter Gravity, which actually didn't make it into my bio, but um, they were just a little political technology startup. Um, and the big moratorium in 2012 after, you know, the Romney presidential campaign was Mm -hmm. political technology was king. And so there was now this huge rise in people interested in and trying to do, uh, political technology, grassroots canvassing, that kind of thing. And so voter gravity was developing a new system that, that they were trying to market. And so I was, um, working for them, writing some of their, um, writing some of their marketing content, writing some of their blog post stuff. Um, did a lot of random, random things for them. That's awesome. Yeah. So one thing that we're, we're definitely covering here is that you have a lot of experience with grassroots campaigning. You did it for a lot of different people. Um, a few different big election cycles. What, and you've continued to do parts of it with Gen J for, for years now. So um, specifically, though, that kind of early season of getting into politics, what would what would you say grassroots campaigning taught you? What did you learn even if it like it, it can be yeah. dumb things like remember a phone charger or like, <laughs> you know, uh, very inspiring, profound things? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, there's there's all kinds of like really practical tips for grassroots advocacy that you just learn by doing or by talking to someone who's done it. Um, but I, you know, I would say the biggest revelation for me was that anyone can talk to anyone. Like I, I was a super shy person. Um, well, I kind of still am. I, I, I am not particularly outgoing. Um, but you, you just get so much confidence being forced to walk up to total strangers' doors and interact with them about what is generally a very controversial topic. Like, you know, people say in Thanksgiving dinner, don't talk about religion or politics. Right. Here I am walking up as a shy person to a total stranger's door trying to talk to them about politics, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but I would say, yeah, if I can do it, anyone can talk to anyone um, that, that was kind of a big revelation to me and very empowering. Um, and then <clears throat> a little kindness goes a long way. Like okay. you have, you have no idea how a, a simple smile at a door can make your, you know, your just general energy and, yeah. you know, good feelings about yourself go through the roof yeah. after, you know, walking an entire block and getting either no responses or, you know, people who mostly just are too busy to, to, try to talk to you or don't want to talk to you, you know, it's like, and then you get the one nice person and it's just like, Oh wow. Why can't more people just smile? Right. (laughs) Right. No, it's so true. (laughs) Yeah. Especially. Yeah. And it's, and then you get to where it's like, you're, you're lucky if, if they're just, you know, it's, it's great if they, if they say something kind, it's whatever you expect a lot of them not to care. Then you also have the others who like are just aggressively against you. Yeah. So by the time you get to a nice person, it can be like a, a bit of an oasis in yeah, the desert. It is. And honestly, like, <laughs> I I am the terrible person who will sit there listening to a telemarketer. Yeah. Because I cannot bring myself to, to basically oh, just hang yeah. up on them. I can relate to that. Because <laughs> yeah. I've done phone banking. I yeah. know what they're going through. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, 
eventually, of course, the sad part is you have to hang up on them right. pretty much. Right. But, like I, I've been on the other end of the line and it's, it's rough. <laughs> yeah. It's it, yeah. Even the dumb ones out, like the ones that are like almost bordering on a scam. Like, you know, uh-huh. it's like politics can be annoying, but usually, I mean, some people could say politicians are trying to scam you, but like, but like, usually it's a real point to it. Like, you know, will you go vote? Yes or no? You know, like, exactly. will, will you support my candidate? But that even, yeah, that phone banking, once you've been phone banking, you've gotten cussed out or whatever happens, called names, you know, you get, you just, I guess it could turn you like really harsh and you want to pass it along <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the bitterness. But for most of the people I, I talk to, it seems like it gives you this compassion where it's like, even when they're like, do you want to, you know, come tour our vacation home and sit down for a five hour presentation? Then you're like, <laughs> I don't really, but, but I'm going to hear you out and I'm going to wait for a gap to politely tell you no, <laughs> wish you a you know, good, good life. Day, you know, you know like, <laughs> I actually that reminds me of something else that 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 you learn very quickly is you you know door to door campaigning. You will always get the people who are grumpy and who don't really want to take the time to talk to you, which is fine. You know, people have busy schedules. Yeah. One thing that I have one hundred percent noticed is how much the face to face interaction matters to how people respond to you. Okay. Like, people can be upset at you, right? But they're not going to like. As a general rule, you, you know, people are not going to be cruel to you when you knock on their door. Okay. When you're phone banking and you're trying to, you know, you're calling them on the phone, yeah. people will be really mean sometimes. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's the in-person, face-to-face interaction. Like, yeah. you know, when you're looking at someone in the face, it's a lot harder to be mean than when you're talking to them on the phone. Like That's a, that's a really good insight. Would you say that extends to persuasion as well with with grassroots politics yeah i think so i mean i mean i actually don't think so um you know with all with all the work that i've done and and, you know some of the research and this is very common knowledge in the political world there is no more effective way to convert someone to vote for you than a face-to-face conversation Mm -hmm. um the problem with that is it's the most expensive way to as well which is why um you know, which is why volunteers are so critically important to all campaigns. Yep. But um, but it is massively more effective to have a person to person interaction yep. for that for that communication. And ironically, f- uh, phone banking, a phone conversation is the second most effective uh, for the exact same reason. It's, okay. a, it's a real person, even though even though it is majorly less effective than a right. face-to-face conversation, yeah. it is still by far the second most effective way. Okay. Um, phone, Even phone above mail pieces or something Far like and that. away, yeah. far and away more effective yeah. than mail pieces or political like, you know, radio ads or TV ads yep. or anything like yep. that. That's, that's remarkable. Um, it got me thinking when you're talking about how, how people on the phone will be way meaner to you than they are at the door, how that, kind of plays into just the general societal dialogue that you know not to get depressing but it's like everyone talks about you don't have to go far to, to hear people talk about how on the internet we can all hide behind our screens and our keyboards mm-hmm. and say horrible things because that's what i what i thought was yeah i've been there i've experienced how people are meaner uh on the phone than they are in person and then i've taken it to the next level and seen how people are way meaner on the internet yes. <laughs> than they are on the phone <laughs> yep yep it's true Uh, It's interesting. Um, But that's why, you know, I guess that's good inspiration for the difference you can make. If you go out and volunteer for just like knocking a few doors for an afternoon Mm -hmm. that those are getting if it's for an issue or a candidate you believe in, that's like some high, 
high value work right there. Mm -hmm. Um, that's awesome. So, uh, let's see, you kind of covered how you got involved with generation Joshua. You, you, you know, you heard about it at a birthday party that was my sister's birthday party. For for those you know who don't know me or Brant particularly well, we go way back, obviously before Generation Joshua, and uh, we we live fairly close to each other. We hang out all the time, so we are like best buddies. But uh, we're also just going to cover you know some stuff that I might be able to tell you about him since this is a podcast and you have no idea, you know, what I already know about Brent. <laughs> so, you know, some of this stuff is not a huge revelation, but I'm still going to ask it because you might care to hear. Um, but you talked about hearing about Gen J and then you started to intern and then you're like dual enrolled interning, working for other, you know, grassroots politics groups, technology groups. What then changed? Cause at some point you were no longer working for multiple organizations, multiple things, and and now you're working for Rich Study A Action, but kind of briefly, you know, walk us through whatever you'd care to walk through about that. Okay, yeah. So um, basically, I, I you know, you convinced me to to apply to be an intern. I applied to be an intern in the fall of 2013, and I my plan was even at that point I was not particularly interested in being in politics full time. I didn't really know mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. I knew it was something interesting, and and I wanted to. You know, I was I was trying things out. Yeah. Um, and so I was planning to go up to Northern Virginia for, um, you know, the the, the fall semester, uh-huh. basically four months. And then uh, Joel asked, "Hey, do you want to you know stay stay through the spring and help us run our our teen track programs or yep. that's what we called them then? Now they're our our, our intensives." Yeah. Um, and I was like, "Sure, why not?" Um, so I, I extended a little bit longer, and then got to the end of the spring semester and they were like, Hey, do you want to help us with our summer camps programs? And I was like, sure, why not? And, uh, by the end of that, I was completely hooked. I, I, I loved politics. I loved the mission of Gen J. I, I had a, a passion for how important it was for average people to speak out about what they care about. Okay. And, um, so I, I was, I was all in. And at that point it was just a matter of, can I stick around long enough to get hired here? Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I did. And I, uh, I was, I was fortunate and, you know, God opened some doors and Joel and, and Jeremiah talked to the powers that be in HSLDA and, and they were able to find a spot for me at Gen J. So I, I became the education coordinator there, um, which, you know, uh, meant my primary responsibilities were helping to develop our programs, um, camps, our intensives, et cetera, yep. as well as managing what, uh, at the time were our distance learning courses. Um, and so, uh, I did that for a little while and then through a variety of, of, you know, interesting circumstances, uh, the opportunity to, jump over to HSLDA's federal relations department yep. came up. And so I did that. I felt like that was going to be really interesting. And I did that for a while and that was great experience. Um, any of you who know Will Estrada, um, he yeah. <laughs> just all, all the many, all the many webs that we weave. Will Estrada was one of the early directors of generation. Joshua became HSLDA's, uh, full-time, um, federal relations director and then left, uh, to join the administration. Um, and he now works at, uh, the department of health and human services as an attorney there, um, doing some really great work. So I worked for him for a really while. He, uh, for a while, he was a great boss, great guy. And, um, 
then I, I'm now working uh, for HSLDA Action to, to quote our, our vice president for a variety of, of mumbo-jumbo FEC IRS uh, legalese reasons. Um, we, we needed to start HSLDA Action um, to continue doing a lot of the things that, that we feel like are really critically important for homeschooling and educational freedom and, and advancing those causes. And so uh, we're in the process and getting really, really close to the public launch of Action. Okay. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for the last about 18 months is just laying all the groundwork, uh, you know, doing, doing all the legwork. Uh, not all of it, but a, a good bit of it to just trying to organize and get that all ready to yeah. be be launched publicly. Which is launching a, an entire entity as well as a brand and a, mm-hmm. a, a public, you know, it's it's a launch. It's there's a lot involved in that. Yeah, so, there's, yeah. there's a lot a lot of moving a lot of moving pieces, a lot of new stuff. Um, trying to figure out how to, you know, communicate to everyone. You know, we're we're. We're carrying on HSLDA's mission, but we're 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 wanting to do it, you know, bigger, better, yeah. um, you know, in, in new in new avenues, in new ways, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Fantastic. So. Maybe when when we like maybe when that's all officially up and live and out there, we'll have to have you back on for maybe even deeper dive on that. That'd yeah, be interesting. I'd, that would be I'd love that. Cool. Um so Thanks for kind of walking us through the the interesting twists and turns there. And uh, one great thing that we like we covered in your bio is that if you're uh, Gen J or listening to this, you've probably seen Brant at many many things because you still are able to somehow find time to. It seems like show up at a lot of Gen J stuff. You're part of the team for lots of stuff for whether it's a camp or a conference or something like that. Um, is that uh, why, why can you do that? Like, 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 how do you get to like, that seems like kind of the best of both worlds. Well, I I mean, it is, it is the best of both worlds. The beauty of it is that, um, you know, the, the, the really close affiliation between the organizations and, you know, Gen J, you know, it, it's all, you know, the complicated legal mess, but Gen J technically being, you know, uh, a part of HSLDA action, um, you know, as, as a division means that, you know, uh, we we both work for for the same legal entity so it, it you know as as long as so we can collaborate yeah exactly we can collaborate and as long as i get my work done i get to uh i, I get to you know partake in in all the gen j stuff and and that's a blast and that's really special to me that well, i still get to do that you've been a, a key part of that for for years now so we appreciate it of course um all right, so uh, I want to ask a question that you know you kind of I, I heard you start to cover it just a little bit, and I think it would be interesting for anybody who's out there right now. A lot of the Gen J students we work with are somewhere in high school. You know, we, we have kids eleven to nineteen in Gen J, but but you know a lot of them kind of land in that that high school age range. So mm-hmm. you know, you you walked us through some of the twists and turns of your personal journey, jobs, that kind of stuff, but like. Were you the kid growing up where you knew what you wanted to do or you knew like where you were going or something like that? Or were you totally not? And how did, what could you say one way or the other to the people who are listening? Yeah. Um, no, not at all. Uh, about the farthest. I can relate about the farthest from knowing exactly what I wanted to do with my life as you can be. Um, okay. I still joke sometimes that I have no idea what I want to do when I grow up. Okay. Um, <laughs> great. The, yeah. So yeah, honestly, I, I am super jealous of the people who, you know, 
who know exactly what what they were put on this earth for you know like okay. you know yeah. they, they were born knowing and that's incredible for them and they drive me nuts because i i want that okay because um, I, I can relate to to a lot of what you're saying here my slightly cynical question is do they though <laughs> or are they just faking it <laughs> probably probably a combination i, I think yeah. that probably this is something that i struggled with and i don't know maybe this will be helpful for some people but i i honestly struggled with feeling like and i still do to a degree the the societal pressure of feeling like you have to have a plan you have to know what's next Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying wander around aimlessly but when I was a teenager my mom um some words of wisdom that that she would share with me regularly um was I so I was um I I had two it's one in the same analogy but I had two uh, hobbies. Of course, I love being outdoors, which, you know, when you have a lot of property involves driving around like four wheelers or ATVs yeah. or quads or, you know, whatever you call them in your little corner of the country. Sure. Um, and uh, also, I, I love sailing ships. And so the analogy is is it easier for God to direct you where to go when you're sitting still or when you're moving forward? Oh, yeah. When you're sitting on an, an, an ATV, is it easier to turn the wheels when you're sitting still or when you're actually driving? Yeah. Or, you know, if you're in a sailing ship or whatever, you know, cranking the rudder all the way over doesn't change where the ship is going. You have to be moving forward for that to be functional. Yeah, that's um, so true. And so she encouraged me to just, you know, I, I genuinely, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and she was just like, well, you got to try stuff. You got to stick your neck out there. You got to, you got to do things and you're going to find as many things that you don't want to do as things that you want to do. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I have not done lots of things in my life, but I've, I've tried, you know, I've, I've tried a variety of things I've done. Um, you know, I've done grassroots campaigning. I've done a lot of marketing stuff. I've tried a little bit of fundraising. I've um, done construction work. I've done fine woodworking. I've done remodeling. I even worked for a few weeks with a friend who's a a mason. And I I was uh, a mason's assistant helping him brick, you know, this massive house in the dead of summer. So, Mm. like, you just do stuff and you figure out, you know what? You know, standing next to a wall in 100-degree temperatures, you know, lifting bricks over my head is, is not for me. Uh-huh. Um, but some people, that they love that. And, yeah. you know, we need those. So it's just trying stuff and moving forward. And that's, if there's anything that I can say looking back about my life is that I had no idea where I was going when I started doing any of the jobs that okay. I did. Yeah. Um, but... I felt like it was it was an opportunity, and I, I took a, took a chance, and it's gone good so far. Well, I appreciate you kind of being willing to go there and, and share that vulnerability because I, I can I can totally relate to to so much of that uh, in my own story. But there's also I can relate to the society kind of like you feel like you're going to get pats on the head or pats on the back, whatever whatever it is. If you're kind of like, here's my five-year plan, here's my 10-year plan, here's my, you know, whatever plan, and I've already written my will by the time I'm 18, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. um, there seems to be kind of a, a, I don't know, a push for that in some circles. What's interesting is that when I look through stories, both contemporary stories and historic stories of people who have done, like, remarkable things, mm-hmm. so many of them, or, or let's, let me say very few of them, were those people who had like the 
I woke up one morning and knew that in 10 years I'd be doing this and this is how I changed the world. So much of it seems to be like small faithfulness slash um, maybe not risk taking, but like like the, the willingness to step out and try something mm-hmm. and not have to put all your eggs in that basket and say, this is what I'm doing for forever, but try something and see what happens. And then you just kind of keep going and, and God steers you and you see doors open and doors close and, and you make the best decision you can. So I, I don't know. I appreciate you sharing that because maybe I just have a hunch that some people listening need to hear that and, and will find that encouraging because um, you can do fantastic stuff just by taking those that one step at a time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, one, 100%. And I mean, it's just, it's all about, it's all about seeing an open door and, and, and stepping into it. And you might find out that that is definitely not the room you're supposed to hang out in, Right. but there's, you know, the screen door that exits out the back of the building to an entirely new building, you know, and you, you know, you never know where opportunities will take you. And, and particularly like, in our world today, yeah. no one does the same thing their entire career. And that's so what, true. You know, like you don't never feel like you have to make a decision. And I'm, I'm, you know, preaching to myself here because this conversation was one that I had dozens of times with my parents never feel like by taking a job or pursuing a, a path that that's the path you're stuck on the rest of your life. Yep. That's just not true. That's yeah. not the way the world works these days. Yeah. It's so true. And, and honestly, maybe you could even say, just because you decide to strike, like, just because you, you really hope and bank and, you know, are committed to a certain path, you know, if, if you're that person that knows exactly what you want to do, also be prepared that you might not be doing that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. that's just the world we live in. And in some ways it's, it's living a, a wholehearted life, I think, because if, if you just basically get out of college, do whatever you're going to do, drop into the, drop into the, you know, kind of preset track and just never look up for the rest of your life. You could live this kind of automated robotic life that maybe is not what you were designed for. You know, I I think that that right there might be a bit of your artistic temperament coming out, but uh, really, (laughs) I mean, perhaps, well, to me, like, like it, it, it's, it's all dependent on the person. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with having the five-year plan, but you know, just don't feel like it's necessary, you know, and and don't feel like you're locked in once you have your five-year plan, you know, life happens, things change, you know, have the plan. If you've got one fantastic, but don't feel bound by it and don't feel like you have to make up one just because people seem to think that if you don't have one, you're going to be a total failure. Right. As if it's like a character flaw, like as if it's like, as if it's like some like, you know, yeah. Like, Oh, I, I was going to be friends with you until I realized she didn't have a five year plan and (laughs) I can't associate with people like that. (laughs) I've been in, I've been in rooms where that's almost the vibe and it's weird. I try to get out of those rooms pretty quickly. Um, Okay. Uh, so, um, this is, I want to take a right turn or a left turn, whatever we're going to do here. Um, one thing that I personally know you care a lot about is history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know if you covered this, but, but why don't you tell us what, what did you actually even study in college? What, what was your, what was your, 
degree, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, you know, like, like all those people, I really paid attention to, to, uh, you know, the people who said get a marketable degree. So I went and I got a history degree, (laughs) um, you know, great for the five-year plan. Um, but no, I, I got my degree in history because, um, I, it was something, it was something that was interesting. And at the time I, at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do. So it didn't, you know, to me, it didn't feel like it made a lot of sense to get some really career specific degree uh-huh. when I had no idea what career I wanted to pursue. So yeah. I got something that was going to be a interesting to me and be something that I genuinely believe is, is valuable for all people pretty yeah. much no matter what. And interestingly, not at all a bad thing to have when going into the world of politics because true, it's, it's, pretty important honestly um and i can i can attest having been uh friends with you for a long time now like this this history thing with with you is not like it wasn't just a like while there was maybe part of it where you're like well this is a degree that i can do even though i don't know what's next like you love history like i would say i would say it often like it seems like you find it mesmerizing like 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 you you will in not not in an annoying way, but you can talk somebody's ear off about history in a way that few people can. Like like you have, you have uh, what I consider a pretty deep and wide knowledge of a lot of of history. That like like I said earlier, I'll come to Brant with my history questions if I'm like, this is what I remember from history when I was doing history class. Let me go talk it by Brant just to make sure that you know I'm not missing some massive uh, chunk of the picture or something. So. Why do you think history means so much to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't. I don't know. I just it, it's its value maybe was just imparted to me when I was a kid, and so that's why it just stuck with me for some reason. So, I, so what is the value of history? Why why should people care? If, if we're starting with kind of a blank slate, who listener X, they're like, eh, history's boring. Yeah. Like, why, why do I care? Well, so, so the thing about history is it is literally the story of, of the past. And that's not, you know, that's not intended to be a cliche, but, and, and nothing I'm about to say is, but if you don't know where you've come from, then you don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know the mistakes of the past or the successes of the past, yeah. then you don't know how to accomplish your goals. Like, I mean, just, you know, take, take, Take America. We all think of America as, you know, the great American experiment. Right. We created something brand new, Republican democracy. Right. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff. But where did they get their ideas? Mm-hmm. They got them from, you know, and, and, you know, Jeremiah, he teaches a whole class on this. He just got done teaching. We, yeah, we talked on about this. that on his podcast, yeah, but, Roots of Liberty. Yeah, but it's like, where did they get these ideas? They got them from, they got them from the Bible. They got them from, you know, the, the, the Magna Carta in London. Yeah. They got them from the ancient Greeks and the yeah. Romans. Yep. They they got them from from these you know philosophers. You think of you know Hobbes and Locke and yeah. you know these various things. And they didn't. What they did is they took all those things, and they took the good things. They yeah. left the bad things. They 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 gleaned the knowledge and the stored experience of thousands of years of human life. Yep. And they created, uh, in in my opinion, and and in many people's opinion, a masterpiece of government. Yeah. And and that's where you got the great American experiment from. And where would we be without history? Where would we be without the past? Yeah. Um, 
and 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 before a lot of those uh, before a lot of those places got you know got their got their things um you know there there were people even before them like you know wh- where did the athenians come from the mm-hmm. athenians came from tyranny and and they were like we're done with this we're sick of this we want to have you know power so they looked at their past they saw their past yeah and they were like we need to come up with a better way and they came up with their version um and and so history is the the goal of the goal of history in my opinion is to explore the past and to learn the lessons and to continue to improve and to mm-hmm. continue to move on and and there is no there's no area of life in when his, in, in which the study of history can't impact and improve your ability to do what you do today that's inspiring um do you think and, and it's, it's definitely hard to, to kind of, you know, backwards uh, interpret and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, you're talking about how the, the framers of our Constitution, the founders of our country, we're looking back through you know, these, these millennia of history and the lessons that they could learn. You know, I don't know if the average person today in the U.S., for example, could do any of that, which, which maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to be wrong, but I guess my question is, do you think that the, there was like a, a more like depth of appreciation of history across like the entire population back then, say in the 1700s at the time of the American Revolution, or do you think it was just a few key people that really knew their stuff? Because, you know, if that's the case, there's hope for today because there's still a few key people who really know their stuff, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's, we have our history nerds, you know, like, like mm-hmm. that's, that's great. But it strikes me that we, you know, we have more information, easier access to information than ever before. Like, like if you were, if you were in the 1700s and you wanted to learn about ancient Greece or you wanted to like, like there's no Google, there's no Wikipedia, yeah, like, sure. like you're literally like going to, you know, borrow the, heavy bound book from someone who may or may not like, you know, there, like, there's no, li- there's no, there's no Amazon two day shipping. Like there's no library. This yeah. is like, maybe you're friends with the rich person who has a few books, mm-hmm. you know, it's so like, how does, how does that work? Yeah. Well, I honestly, I think it's, it's a, a very important combination of the two things. So okay. first of all, I think it is important to acknowledge that the founding fathers were, special they okay. were educated they mm-hmm. none of the you know many 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 of the founding fathers came from humble beginnings yeah but not a single one of them was an average joe by the time they were helping to create the constitution mm-hmm. of the united states right whether whether because they were born into wealthy families or whether because they had families sacrificed to put them through their education or whether yep. because they self-educated them in, in themselves, you know, in yep. some cases, they were educated people. Okay. So they were not your average Joe, average American. So okay. it isn't a fair, you know, and not that you were making the comparison, but, right. but it wouldn't be fair to say that, you know, and any random person yeah. back in the colonial eras yeah. could have done with the founding. Pull a random colonist off the street. That's and they clearly could not talk the, to you about that's Greece. That's clearly you know? not the case, right? Yeah. Um, so that's important to acknowledge. But the other important thing to acknowledge, I think, is that history meant more to people back then. Okay. It it was it was part of culture, and I think the more that 
I think if you track through, even if it wasn't, you know, ancient history, uh-huh. just where your family came from uh-huh. mattered. The historical roots of what your family did yeah. mattered. The, the, the cultural and local history mm-hmm. mattered um, to people. People were much more defined by who they were, where they came from, who their family was. Mm-hmm. And that's all history. Yeah. And in some ways, that was a good thing. In some ways, that was a bad thing. Okay. Um, I do think that in in an effort to get rid of the the more negative aspects of that reality, yep. um, you know, we now have, you know, upward social mobility, more so than we did in the colonial era. Sure. You know, America was always a place where people could move above their station with effort and, you know, um, you know, their, their own willpower to a certain degree, but we have moved even further away from, from, you know, that, and that's a good thing. The bad thing is as we've moved away from that, we have begun to value history less and less, um, Mm -hmm. as a society. That's my opinion, but I think there's good reasons that I can say that. Um, and I think that it, and I think that it isn't being taught, with the same emphasis that it used to be even in, in the schools okay. um, and in education today. And I, that concerns me, honestly. Okay, so that's, um, that is actually a fantastic segue to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, you've dealt with education policy a good amount with your work with uh, the federal relations team for HSLDA, uh, with what you're going to be doing with HSLDA Action, even with GenJ a bit. Um, what is your opinion of education in America today? Yeah, sure. Um, so the first thing I, I want to do is, and this is probably socially, uh, uh, this is probably you know bad bad policy for someone to to put themselves down as they're you know trying to talk professionally about something. But okay. the important thing to know is that there are experts and there are experts. Um, there there are true experts, and then there are people who who work in the area. They have more knowledge than the common person. Um, you know, they're, they've studied it. They're they're passionate about it, but but they're not like you know, the, the crazy experts. I don't belong on a national panel here. Okay. Um, so, so my opinions, you know, are, they're relevant, um, in that I've, I've, you know, been around, I've been around it a good bit, Yeah. but they, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I don't sure. have the solutions. Well, you're starting off with humility out that I'm not going to, I'm not going to fault you for that. Um, but so, so my, my opinion with, with the caveats is, um, Basically, the, the uh, American education is is declining, and that's not a doomsday thing. That's just kind of an, an, a statement of of the facts, and we're seeing that we've seen that for a little while now. That education doesn't seem to be doing as good a job preparing students in America for success as it used to, mm-hmm. um, and. and compared to some other educational systems going on in the world yeah. uh, as a whole. Um, and, and that's just, that's just the reality. And that's um, like, that's something that I've heard on almost all sides of the political spectrum and everything. Like, it, like that, that's not particular. I mean, that's not controversial, right? That's, that's not that's particularly undes- controversial. That's, yeah, that, that's, that's a, a undeniable might offend some fact. teachers who are working really hard, but like, even right. they are going to be like, yeah, this is why I'm working hard because the system's broken. You it, know? It, yeah. Well, exactly. And I think, and I think that's kind of the problem is not the, 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 
problem I see that's causing that is, first of all, culturally, America needs to realize that education begins at home. Okay. And that's something that we talk about, you know, for homeschooling. Yeah. And I, and I firmly believe that, but I don't even mean homeschooling. Okay. I mean just period. Okay. Um, so I, I recently, uh, I, I recently read a book and I, I'm not remembering the exact study, so I can't cite it, but uh-huh. I'd be happy to look it up for people. But basically, um, it, someone was examining the, um, the, the impacts of, uh, basically education. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, yes, the education system is not, you know, like our students aren't graduating from our education system being as prepared as they used to be, but there are there are these evaluations and basically what they determined was people you know students that are underachieving mm-hmm. um uh and you know are commonly coming you know this is not this is not from a this this is just the reality lower lower income people often have lower achieving students mm-hmm. educationally right. and so they were trying to look into that and how do we fix that yeah. and um you know, this is slightly controversial, but it is fairly well documented that dollars spent per student has very little effect on the the increase of educational quality okay. for students, which is not something that you will often hear in politics. Yeah, that's, but it, that but seems like we hear the opposite pretty regularly. Yes, but it's it's true. Uh, dollars per student does not correlate to achievement um, in in many cases. Now. Um, you know, that is a, a whole worm-filled discussion. Sure. But but this guy was examining if that is the case, what is the issue? And he, um, there have been studies that have tested students from from lower from upper and lower income brackets. Yeah. And basically, you test a student at the beginning of the year, at the end of a school year, and then at the beginning of the next school year. Mm-hmm. And these tests are designed to determine how much a student learns and progresses educationally from a given period of time to a given period of time. Okay. So they'll test a student at the beginning of the school year. They'll test the student at the end of the school year, and they'll see how much that student has advanced from an educational perspective. Sure. And what they found out was that in schools... The lower income students and the higher income students had approximately equivalent advancement educationally. Okay. Um, and and obviously this is large groups of data. We're not yeah. talking about you know we're talking student, averages here. Yeah, we're talking averages. Yeah. Here. Um, the and so if that's the case, then why do some students underachieve and get further and further behind mm-hmm. the higher they get into the grades? And so what you do is after the end of year test, you take the beginning of the next school year test, and that will tell you how much the students learned over the course of the summer. And what they found is that people in the higher socioeconomic brackets, generally speaking, learned more during the summer than those who weren't in the higher socioeconomic brackets. Interesting. And the the sociologist studies... basically indicate that the reason for that is that people in higher socioeconomic brackets tend to take their students to more, you know, museums. They make their students read more books. They do these kinds of educational activities over the summer. So it's not that the schools are failing to educate the students. It's that the people in the lower socioeconomic brackets, the people who aren't getting this home life education Mm -hmm. are falling behind because by the time they enter high school, they've 
lost out on eight summers worth yeah. of home education. Not, That's fascinating. Not in a organized sense, but just in a, this is an educational environment that yeah. the home is. Yeah. And so we as a society and as a culture need to realize that education from home is important and that okay. the home and the parent has a critical role to play in a student's education. And I think that's the biggest thing. And then the other thing is we have lost the value of education. We as a society and as, as kids don't value education anymore. Okay. Um, and, and that's, you know, that sounds bad and, and there's obviously people that do value education, but, um, if you, you know, if you think back to the days where kids were, you know, had their parents tell them they needed to walk to school for miles, you know, that was sacrifice and that was sacrifice that was being pushed on students by their parents, not by the government. Right. You know, like people got pushed into them. They may not have liked school, right. But their parents were telling them from the time they were going, from the time they started going to school to the time they ended going to school that school was worth it. They, like they were sacrificing and that means that what they were getting was valuable because yeah. you don't sacrifice for something that isn't valuable. Right. Um, Even like there's always been kids for all, all of time. I'm, I'm assuming that didn't find their math or their language arts or whatever thrilling. Right. But there, <laughs> you know, you don't have to look very hard in any era to find a kid who would skip school for that day. But the, the tone being set by the parents, by the culture at large was mm-hmm. like, this is valuable. This is something to, to chase after mm-hmm. is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. And and we need to find a way to make make people realize that education is valuable again. Okay. Uh, any ideas on that, or is that the big lucky question of the day? I think that's the big lucky question of the day. I have some really wacky, crazy ideas that probably definitely shouldn't happen, but okay. that I would be very curious to find out what would happen if we did them. Okay. Um, and then uh, I have uh, you know some just basic ideas, and honestly, it all goes back to to the parents in the society, right? Like yeah. if parents tell their children that education is worth sacrificing for if mm-hmm. parents create educational environments in their homes yeah. or even if they don't have the ability to create an educational environment in their home you know uh, send them to lo- send them to the local libraries there's yeah. like there's there's programs send yeah. them to you know schools like yeah. or we as a culture need to make programs for people yeah. who don't have that opportunity right and so if a parent inculcates in their children from an early age that education is important, that's going to be the critical thing. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it begins at home. And then I have this, this is a wacky, crazy idea. And I am genuinely saying this should probably not be done or not uh-huh. be done without lots and lots of studies, but yeah, I'm yeah. genuinely interested to see what effect mandatory schooling has on people's perceptions of the value of education. Okay. Because I kind of, I, I don't know this and I have not done the research to back yeah, this up, yeah. but I, I just have kind of a gut feeling that the law forcing people to go to school to yeah. a certain age, um, has actually had a negative impact on people's view of the importance of school. Yeah. Versus because when the parent is fighting with the kid who doesn't want to go to school. Mm-hmm. Does the parent say you're going to school because I think it's important and right. let me explain to you why it's important? Or do they go to school because they say you have to go to school? It's the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Among 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 many so, other things. So basically, what if so what you're saying is like, what if 
if, if it was less required or less mandatory and it was more of a something that we're chasing after, it could be more self-motivating as kids get older, basically. Potentially, like, yeah. Yeah, that's I, fascinating. The, the problem with this, of course, is that it would be very painful in the short term. Sure, because um, you'd have, yeah. <laughs> you'd have, you'd like have a lot of super people dumb generation. <laughs> you'd have a lot of people who stop going to school yeah. and that causes a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, but I think that maybe that one generation of people who suffer because they don't have the education right. that they need. Um, they will be the grandparents that are like, that education is rather important, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, again, I really don't think that's probably the best solution, right. but it is just something that I've had rolling around in my yeah. head for a long time. No, and, it, and it's, it's interesting because sometimes we do see situations where, where freedom inspires, inspires like aspiration yeah. versus, uh, you know, mandatory things just inspire apathy, you know, exactly. where, where it's like, it's, it's almost like if you, <laughs> did you ever, did you ever, were you ever a kid and there was stuff that you would have happily done slash wanted to do in your own time? Like you would have found your way to it. You would have happily done it. But then the minute your parents told you, you had to do it and you had to do it now, it like lost all of its sparkle. Like, 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone has experienced yeah, that. The yeah. You have to do something. Right. It kind of loses a lot of it's, its like, charm, you know? I remember, I remember being told to literally go play with the toys in my room, my Legos, my beloved Star Wars figures, you know, whatever it was. And if I just, and that split second had not had that on my mind of wanting to be in my room, then it suddenly became a big drag. It's like, you know, tomorrow I'll be, begging to go play with the toys in my room. But, you know, it's, I don't know. It's not a fantastic analogy, but it's very interesting. Okay, well, for Virginia, at least, one thing that it's going to be hard to ignore um, is that we are still in some sort of a lockdown. We're in phases in Virginia. And so I know every week we do this, and I keep saying we're in lockdown. You know, it's like I, I just have the impression that in partially the data backs it up around the country is that Virginia feels like it's dragging its feet more than other places. So I feel like our listeners around the country <laughs> are just going to be getting more and more just like, um, kind of like sadly sympathetic. To, <laughs> like, I'm here enjoying my summer and Daniel's still recording a podcast in lockdown. <laughs> but you know, we're still, you know, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to, we're going to continue this journey until we're done with it and we'll bring you listeners along. Um, we're still in lockdown, uh, at least, uh, phase two for, for where we're in Virginia right now and where our office is, is phase one. And, uh, if you care to know about the specifics of the phases, don't talk to me because you can go Google that yourself. That's not what this podcast is about. Um, <laughs> but the, I mean, if you comment on the Instagram, maybe I'll re reply, but that's about it. Um, but as we're in lockdown and you've been part of this life that, that all of Gen J has been doing right now in HSLDA, which is working remote, working from home. Uh, what, what does that look like for you? What, what, you know, has this been hard? Has this been whatever, like, like what has been challenging or, or I don't know, or the opposite, like, like what has lockdown life looked like for you? Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I, I actually have enjoyed it a good bit. Um, okay. you know, not, not the reason for it, obviously yeah. that's been, you know, terrible, but the, the, the act of quarantine slash, you know, lockdown and social distancing or whatever, that has not been too bad for me. Okay. Um, Expand I, on that. I, I'm, cause I'm over here, I'm over here kind dying. of like withering and yeah. you know, whatever shriveling. I, <laughs> I, I'm, um, 
I'm a homebody. Okay. And, and so I, I've really loved it. Um, I, I like just hanging out at home. I, I'm not a particularly social creature. I have friends. I enjoy friends. And when I have the opportunity to hang out with friends, I almost always do. Mm-hmm. But inevitably I come home from hanging out with a friend being like, that was fun. And then I wake up the next morning and I'm like exhausted and I'm okay. like, I need to not do that again tonight. <laughs> and then, you know, I'll, I'll go out and, you know, do something again. And yeah. so it's like my weeks went from basically being like, preciously guarding two nights a week where I could just be home and be my homebody self and really, really enjoying that and appreciating that and wishing that I could have more of that to basically being like, I'm home every night and you got your wish, you know, one or two of the things that I normally do moved online. And I'm like, this is kind of great. I don't don't mind this. (laughs) Like I will enjoy, um, I will enjoy getting back to see, you know, see some of my friends in person and you know, whatever. Um, but the slowdown was really nice for me okay. in general, actually. Well, hey, that's that's not a bad thing. It's I guess it's important and and good to celebrate some of the silver linings wherever we find them, uh, and even if they apply to certain people and not other people. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so if that so okay so so for you this has not been some slog in you know. Uh, I know on the podcast so far, we've, we've talked to Joel who was like leading his town through this. So, you know, it's just kind of different and hectic in its own way. Jeremiah, who was, was fairly down in the dumps about just lockdown was horrible and canceling (laughs) everything and ruining life, which I, I guess if you're going to put me on the map, I'm, I'm more in his camp with that. Um, and then we had Glenn who was saying that he was what did he say? He was, he basically said that his more life socialized he had during more, lockdown, yeah, he had more social interaction during lockdown, just cause he, <laughs> yep. I guess is super antisocial. Not, not necessarily. I mean, maybe yes, maybe that's what he'd say, but, um, he just is more thrown together with the people, at least in his house than he normally would be. Um, and I don't know. So I guess, I guess we're like so far on the podcast, we're like 50, 50 with like two people who are like, yeah. Hey, I don't, I don't know. I guess I don't know if Glenn's lockdown comments were positive or not. He was just, I, I think they were fairly positive. I okay. think he was just like that. It was the weird thing that's happened yeah. to him during lockdown. Okay, fine. So then, so then, so we're not going to talk about the struggle of lockdown for you then. Um, but we will talk about then, um, what's the strangest thing that's happened to you? I've asked everybody this and I want to know, like in maybe nothing, maybe, maybe you're just like living your happy life at home and literally nothing strange has happened. But if you had to pick something in your files, like, you know, for me, I've just thought of all the stuff that I couldn't find at the store that I used to be able to find at the store. Like that was pretty strange. Like, you know, anything like that, like there's been some weird stuff going on. Uh, Honestly, I think the strangest thing for me has been a more recent thing. And it's, it's this, (sighs) trying to trying to you know be i'm trying to be very you know respectful and appropriate but to me it is the ironic dichotomy that i was allowed to walk into the the grocery store during the peak of virginia's coronavirus you know quarantine whatever yeah and you know i'm only allowed to walk down the aisles in one way and they've got me you know like with taped boxes and checkout aisle and you know they're they're scrubbing like a board game shopping felt like a board game you're like bouncing from one spot to the next it's like mousetrap yeah (laughs) like (laughs) anyway amazing um mousetrap yeah but so like in the peak 
I could walk into the grocery store and I'm having to jump through all these hoops and I'm having to follow these little tape sure. arrows and do all this, you know, crazy disruptive, you know, stuff yeah. in terms of like normal everyday life. Right. But I didn't have to wear a mask. Right. Like it was kind of like for the first part, I was encouraged not to. The second right. part, I was encouraged to, but it wasn't required. Yeah. And now when I'm allowed to be in gatherings of up to 50 people, right. I'm required to wear a mask. Yeah. And I'm just yeah, yeah. like that. Whether it's right, whether it's wrong, I'm not really trying to discuss right. that. I'm just saying that's kind of weird. Like, right. There's, just it's, there's like zero consistency Why on Why do I have to wear a mask now yeah. when I can have 50 people over to my house and not wear a mask right. and be perfectly legal Right. when I didn't have to wear a mask yeah. and I wasn't allowed to see anyone Anybody. who wasn't in my family right. and couldn't be in groups of more than 10 anywhere? No, I, f- I feel you with that. It's it's strange. I saw... I saw a graphic that was mostly just humorous graphic, but it was like a chart with the lines of, of things and their relative levels of importance, like at like January, February. And then when it hit March and all the lines changed, so it was things like, you know, coffee, um, <laughs> wearing what you might call real clothes and not pajamas or, you know, casual around the house clothes. Uh-huh. Um, you know, things like your car or something like that. And like when it hit March, it was like half the things just like bottomed out. And it's like, you know, it's like, like, like dressing in like business casual clothes, just like, you know, sunk. They just plummeted, you know, those lines plummeted, you know, needing your car, took a big hit because you're still in your car for something, but the line just kind of dropped way down and then leveled out. Um, you know, things like coffee, they basically just said, you know, it just kind of remained constant with a few little spikes. Um, Mm -hmm. but the one, then there was this line that was literally like a child's scribble. Like it was just like all over the place, like up, down, sideways. And it was like the need for a mask. And it was like, depending on the day, the moment, the minute, we could be high importance, low importance, backwards, you know, sideways. And it was, it was cracking me up because I share some of that. Oh my gosh, that's um, Rueful, rueful questioning. Um, But uh, I, I, the people listening right now can't, can't see it, but I still have on my, my mask from when I was shopping earlier, which today happens to be a yellow bandana, a yellow paisley bandana. So I'm, I'm sporting... I've turned the mask into part of my outfit, which I don't know if that's like artistic, uh, artistic protest or like complete surrender. I'm not sure, but, um, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right. Uh, final few questions. Let's see here. Um, how have you adapted to find fun and you know, I, I mean, I know you said you love being at home, so maybe this doesn't apply. But like, assuming that you still want to change up something to like make the days feel different, mark your weekends. Like, you know, I don't know. What have you been doing to kind of decompress and have fun when you couldn't just go out and see a movie or something? You know, yeah. like I don't know. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, so. <laughs> You know, you see all the memes going around about people, you know, you know, planning to exercise during quarantine and not. Right. Um, I, I actually have, which oh, look is at you. a unique departure for me. I despise exercise. So this is not fun, Okay. but this is like one of the things that I've done to try to like, I don't know, you know, decompress or, you know, whatever, yeah. like you said. Yeah. Um, and it, it has been, it is. I think it's helped me more than I would like to give it credit for. Okay. Even though I despise it every morning and I get up every morning and I have to force myself to do it. I think that that's been something that's been really good 
um, that I've done cool. just to get me out of the house, you know, um, to go for, go for a jog, you know, every other morning mm-hmm. and, you know, see the town, see the trees, you know, run around the park, yep. that kind of thing. That's, that's been good. Um, but also just spending, you know, spending lots of time, you know, watching shows or, yeah. you know, painting, painting my, my miniatures. Okay. Cause I'm nerdy like that. And, <laughs> nice. you know, uh, miniature what, uh, so I, I play a, a Lord of the Rings tabletop, uh, strategy mm. game that, that uses miniatures and, okay. um, yeah. Anyway. So if, if somebody listening comments on Instagram and wants to see like pictures or something, would you provide those? Yeah, I guess I could. Okay. I mean, I'm not, they're not like incredible or anything, but I could show well, some pictures. I mean, they're probably better than the ones I've made. Spoiler alert, none. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe if you're listening and you want to see a picture of some of the uh, miniatures that Brandon's been working on, comment on the Instagram. And if we get one or two, maybe he'll give us a picture to post. I don't know. Do you reserve? You can reserve the right to turn that down, but. We'll see. We'll see how nice. The, no, the, I'll just the I'll find are. my I'll find my best showpiece ones, and you guys can imagine that the rest of mine look like that when they. The, I don't care. That's fine. Basic. <laughs> Sounds great. Show your best work. Um, and okay, so you also said shows. What shows? What books? What stories? Whatever have been impacting you recently during lockdown? Yeah. So I've actually um, I've been introducing maybe too i'm I'm a closet trekkie star trek was a big part of my childhood okay and so i've been i've been showing mamie all the the star Mamie's trek your shows. wife right yeah yeah, Mamie, yeah Mamie's we talked about earlier just in case people had forgotten so um i've been showing her star trek voyager uh-huh. this is gonna sound a little cliche maybe a little bit but like i i feel like in a very weird way yeah voyager has felt like this season oh interesting because if you don't know anything about Voyager, it's like sci-fi, it's a TV show, um, and it's about a starship that gets hurtled to the other side of the galaxy, and in you know in the very first episode, okay. and they're trying to make their way back home, oh. and it's it's a group of it's a group of 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 humans and a couple aliens splashed yep. in that are all on this ship and it's the story of them being stuck on the other side of the galaxy experiencing all kinds of things they've never experienced phenomenon they have no idea what to do with okay. and just they're they're facing the struggles and continuing to move forward trying to go home um without Basically, without losing their hope, without yeah. losing their sense of adventure, their spirit of exploration, wow. kind of the hallmarks of what, you know, the hallmarks of humanity, as it were. Yeah. Um, and, and so they, they're thrown into completely, you know, different and difficult and dangerous circumstances and them trying to keep who they are without, um, you know, keep who they are and keep moving forward without basically just being stuck in their ways or anything. So well, it, I don't think that sounds cliche at all. That sounds a lot like my quarantine journey, at least the positive best version of it. So maybe I need to watch Star Trek Voyager or something. Yeah, you should watch it. I'll come okay. over and show it to you sometime. It sounds good. <laughs> I'm, I'd be down. Um, and then I, I've, I've read these other two books during quarantine that, that uh, my mom actually recommended to me. Um, but... Uh, They've been speaking to me a lot. One is called The Death of Expertise by Thomas Nichols. Oh, interesting. And that's been fascinating because he talks basically about the um, how 
public faith in experts has uh-huh. been declining in, in almost every field. Um, and he, he deals with it from a lot of different perspectives, both how experts have failed mm-hmm. and the reasons why experts have hurt their own credibility, yep. but also how society in general, the many things that society in general has done to basically remove um, respect for uh-huh. knowledge and yeah, expertise. Yeah. And um, ironically, that has played, you know, that has been very interesting in quarantine as well, just yeah. seeing all yeah, yeah. of, you know, all of the expert opinions and the conflicting opinions, right. and the conflicting data. Because everyone you know, produces their pet expert. It's yeah, like, everyone or, produces, you know, expert everyone produces their quotes, pet like, expert and, and who's an expert and who's not. Yeah. Why should I listen to this guy and not yeah. that guy? Yeah. And, and, you know, all these things. So that was very fascinating. Um, and, and, and then another one that I listened to was Cosmic Justice by Thomas Sowell, who is an, an African-American, uh, and, and I only say that because it, it lends unique credibility and perspective to the topic. Uh-huh. Um, he's, he's an African-American um, economist okay. who works, uh, well, well he, I mean, he does a million different things, um, but he, he is a professor at an Ivy League university, okay. has done all kinds of scholarly work. Yep. Um, uh, great author. I've read a lot of books by him. Um, and his, his book cosmic justice is basically talking about the difference between justice that we can have in society today okay. and justice as I would describe it, justice as God will give us at the, you know, one at day. The judgment day, one day okay. on judgment okay. day, basically where everyone is, is, Basically, where the playing field is truly leveled, mm-hmm. and where everyone uh, is judged based on um, a, a true evaluation of their advantages, their disadvantages, their you know what they did with the opportunities okay. they had. Yeah. Um, and 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 so that was really fascinating. And I read this way before any any of the current events um that are going on but okay. but the, the main the main point was basically um how do we as a society deal with the fact that there is privilege and underprivilege and yeah. and how do we how do we maintain a just society uh-huh. um and how do we help people who aren't privileged and yeah. and cosmic justice would Cosmic justice would say that we need to basically try to level the playing field here on Earth, uh-huh. um, and, and this is a very this is a very crude interpretation of of, of you know the very you know compelling yeah. you know discussion that he has of it in the book. Yeah. But basically, cosmic justice says we want everyone to have equal opportunity here on Earth, uh-huh. but justice. Uh, applied justice that we can do says that if you try to equal the playing field, what you're actually doing is inflicting injustice on other people okay. in order to benefit right. those people who were underprivileged. Uh-huh. And, and the very difficult balance of trying to help people without trying to inflict harm to other people. Yeah. And it was, yeah. it was just a fascinating discussion of that difficulty and that dichotomy okay. um, where true cosmic justice is really impossible to achieve here on earth. Okay. So how do we go about um, helping 
yeah. in, in a way that will be effective doing and, and do the least things. damage. Yeah. Um, that, so that, okay, that I mean, honestly, wow. I have a lot of questions about that that I'm, I'm not going to dive into right now, but I feel like that could be its own, own podcast episode here it, before it's, long. It's a fascinating book. I would encourage everyone to read it. Okay. Um, it's called cosmic it, justice by Thomas Sowell, Thomas Sowell. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, there we'll consider that Brant's official recommendation. Is there anything else before we wrap up that you would like to say, uh, before we sign off, uh, with the Gen J listeners? I, I guess the only thing that I would say is, um, I don't know, be hopeful. <laughs> it's hard to, you know, sometimes it's a little easy to, you know, see the news or, you know, see the current events or whatever and, and get discouraged, but be hopeful. Like we have a unique opportunity in America, no matter who we are, um, to make a difference. And yeah. I think that people are, I think that people are beginning to see that they're beginning to realize that. And I hope that more than ever before people take the opportunity to get involved, to make, to make a difference, um, in a positive way. And, and, and I, you know, I, I think that in, in a lot of ways we're in very dark times, but in a lot of other ways, I think that, that we are seeing a rare opportunity of people, um, starting to, starting to take advantage of the resources and the opportunities that are unique to our American way of life. Um, so be hopeful and be, be part of the solution. I love that. I think that's a fantastic place to wrap it up. Thank you, Brant. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Happy to be here and, uh, look forward to hearing more, more episodes, uh, from all the other staff members and whatever guests you have coming up next. Yeah. We've got some exciting stuff coming up. Uh, thanks Brant. We'll, uh, I know we'll want to have you on again. Alrighty. Hey friends, if you enjoyed today's episode of the Gen J podcast, go ahead and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most of the other major podcast sites and apps. Uh, if you really liked the show, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review, uh, hopefully a good review to help other people find it. Uh, this is really helpful when we're starting out with a new show to help people connect with the podcasts who are already listening to similar podcasts. We would love to stay in touch with you, so shoot us an email at info at generationjoshua.org or follow us at Generation Joshua on Instagram and Facebook. We will be back soon with another episode.